Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we analyze Canadian news and Black issues on a weekly basis. And if you think we've got the sauce, subscribe. On this week's episode, we are joined by acclaimed political badyal and best-selling author Selena Cesar Chavan as we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of March 21st, including the Ontario budget and the D word. The CMHC says we're in a bubble. Rogers wants to buy Shaw. Good for investment and competition. Anti-Asian racism gets a spotlight in the fight against white supremacy. Apparently, firing a Toronto cop for use of excessive force is outside the bounds of reasonableness, Hmm. and plenty more. Now, are you ready to jump into Canadian news and Black issues? Let's do it. (laughs) See it, man? (laughs) To kick off our politics segments. (laughs) So last week, Premier Ford released his 2021 budget. Did you take it in? I took it in, but I figured that Dougie was going to be cheap anyway, paying for the, the, you know, the bare necessities. Was it good? Was it a good budget? Well, well, Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey, who, by the way, is Ontario's third finance minister in as many years because Doug Ford's government was legit a shit show before the pandemic, <laughs> delivered a massive budget that will spend $186.1 billion to support Ontario lives and livelihoods through the pandemic. Considering that employment is still stubbornly high, it aims to stimulate the economy, cranking up deficit spending to once considered unfathomable levels to increase mm-hmm. spending on healthcare while boosting grants to businesses and parents. Wow! Right. Get this. Baked into the budget is a $33.1 billion deficit which is super ironic because Bethlen Falvey himself used to work at credit rating agency DBRS, where he shit on Ontario's debt levels. Like he habitually hated on debt. And now here he is, deficit spending like he wrote the book on it, saying, quote, I would do it all over again for protecting the health and well-being of of the people of Ontario. We have a war against an invisible enemy. This is what governments do. Wow. End quote. (laughs) <laughs> you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that 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 Hot Wings episode with um with Paul Rudd. This guy, Look at us. Who, who would have thought? Not me. Yeah. That's right <laughs> and that deficit, it adds to our total debt. So it's now a crazy $439.8 billion. Uh, and total borrowing is set to exceed half a trillion dollars within two years. That half a trillion dollars, that's more than half of Ontario's entire GDP. Wow. These numbers are unheard of, but of course, 
we are in a pandemic, so the spending makes sense. What, we're, what are we spending on? Here's a snapshot. Well, for one, everyone is getting exactly two pairs of Yeezys and Red Bottoms. I'm Come just on, kidding. Come on, yes, yes, yes. I'm I need totally to be a new pair. No, that's not true. Do not go expecting that. It is not true. Here's what is actually happening. With healthcare being the top priority, it got the most money, $16.3 billion, including $2.1 billion to address the backlog of surgeries and to give support to groups like ours that have been disproportionately devastated by COVID. There's $4.9 billion, which will be spent over the next four years to hire thousands more long-term care staff with the goal of improving patient care thresholds from 2.75 hours today to four hours eventually. But a big demand from long-term care workers was making the temporary $3 boost they're getting until June permanent, since low wages are a key reason why the industry is so poorly staffed. Mm-hmm. Bethlen Falvey says he'll consider extending the temporary pay come June. There's a further $2.3 billion set aside for contact tracing and testing for COVID-19, another billion dollars to help people or public health units, rather, across the province get COVID shots in arms. For businesses, there's $1.7 billion, which will be spent to support some of them, with a second installment of the Ontario Small Business Support Grant, which gives eligible businesses anywhere from 10000 to 20000 but as Andrew Horvath's NDP points out, they needed to loosen eligibility criteria so more businesses, especially women and BIPOC-led ones, could tap into the support, especially since they say they want to simulate the economy to grow our way out of deficit. For parents, there is $980 million for the learner's credit introduced by the Ford government last year to help parents homeschool their kids. It's been doubled to 400 bucks to help parents with the cost of homeschooling and uh, now applies to students up to grade 12, as opposed to being cut off before at grade eight. Families with special needs will get uh, 500 bucks per child up to 21. It's something, but education unions aren't really enthusiastic about it, saying their position, and rightfully so, is that while the money's helpful, it's not even keeping up with the cost of inflation. And it does nothing to try filling the gaps we know exist because of the pandemic. And let's remember that education has been chronically underfunded for decades. Mm-hmm. Bethan Falvey also spent $75 million on the CARE tax credit that helps parents with child care. But in reality, that program only helps parents if they've already secured a licensed daycare spot. You don't have that, you're out of luck. I can already tell that something is missing. <laughs> yeah, let me guess. Paid sick leave? Yeah. <laughs> They're still refusing to give workers paid sick leave, fam. I don't understand. Like saying there's already a federal program in place, even though it's barely being used since people are afraid to use it. So Dougie has a role to play in getting usage up, but he refuses to play it. Childcare didn't get nearly enough, even though Doug Ford's conservatives seem to be signaling that they won't be like typical conservatives by setting up a childcare task force. They also claim they're waiting to see what the federal childcare plan will look like. They're so follow fashion. Why can't they? Follow fashion like Awa. Follow fashion. Although there's literally billions in cash for education, it's not enough to render higher quality education through lower class sizes. Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown and council have been pleading for a new hospital since their system was running above 100% even before the pandemic. Mm. Instead of a new hospital, they'll be getting a new wing. Both the official opposition NDP and the Liberals say the plan lacks ambition and foresight to reimagine our economy during a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But interestingly enough, 
I came across a non-scientific poll in the Star, and a strong majority of the thousands of people who took that poll think Ford is doing things right. That might be why his approval ratings are still high at 38%, which is like 10 points ahead of the NDP, which is in second place. And of course, then the liberals in third place with 15%. So my question is, do you agree with Bethlehem Falvey that we can grow ourselves out of our economic hole by expanding the economy and getting help from the feds alone? Or do you think we should be raising taxes on wealth and high profits too? I think I can I can let you go first on this one, Selena. If you have any opinions on this, yeah, so, <laughs> share all of them. <laughs> so so yeah, um, so you want to grow the economy by not giving people the capacity to live well in their economy. So who do you think grows the economy for the long term? Like it's people. You need healthy people who are able to navigate throughout their their communities. So this is economics 101. This is basic economics where, you know, in a little while, I would say within the next year or so, they're going to say they're going to come up with a report that says the GDP or the the Ontario's growth has been, you know, X amount of percentage. Mm -hmm. Well, basic economics will tell you that when government spends one hundred and eighty six billion dollars, you're going to grow the economy. There's only four ways to do that. Government spending, consumer spending, um, uh, exports, and investments in our country, in in the province. Mm -hmm. So if government spending is so high, your growth of your province is going to be up. So that's why the finance minister can guarantee that there's going to be growth because of basic economics. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about things like what's missing from this, this budget in terms of the two crises that we're facing right now, you know, $800,000 over how many years or per year for anti-racism. <laughs> hmm. no. Right. Right. Like th- there is a, there is a blatant attempt by this provincial government to say, we don't really care about some of the issues that, racialized people in this province actually face. Mm. And that is where I am I'm challenged with this 186 billion dollars. This is like a federal budget. Yeah, mm. it's huge. This is huge. this is a mammoth budget for a province. And where does it go? There should be there should have been a strategic focus on some of those high impact areas right. where we know that covid covid is not racist, the disease itself. Mm -hmm. But we know that the infrastructure around many people who look like us is racist. And this budget clearly demonstrates that that capacity to cease racism within uh, government institutions does not exist. Jumping to the Canadian economy. The CMHC says we're in a bubble. So over the last few episodes, we've been telling you about how the housing market has been on fire. We've even been sharing stories highlighting the silliness of it all. Well, here's some news that might spook some people into slowing their roll. Maybe. Perhaps. The CMHC, Canada's housing agency, released its latest market assessment last week, warning that the markets in Toronto, Ottawa, and Halifax are overheated overvalued, and highly vulnerable to a price correction. 
Both Hamilton and Moncton were already on the CMHC's red zone, the agency's strongest warning level for two back-to-back quarters. Toronto, Ottawa, and Halifax were put there as home prices shot up in the last two quarters of 2020. Let's take a look at the data because honestly, maybe it's a personal blind spot of mine, but being from Toronto, it's fascinating. Hamilton, mostly a commuter city, was once considered affordable. That's how I've always considered it. Mm -hmm. The average selling price of a detached house is now nearly 800,000. And how about elsewhere in the province? In Barrie, the price of a typical detached house jumped by almost $100,000, $100,000 over three months to $721,000 in February, according to the Canadian Real Estate Association. House prices in Kitchener-Waterloo have gone up by at least $100,000 over three months as well. Milton prices are up almost $200,000, more than they were in November. I I saw that a friend of mine, uh, he lives out in Milton. And he posted that he just got his dad into real estate. (laughs) It sounded backwards, but now I see why. (laughs) Overall, the extreme price acceleration in Ontario has some economists and realtors warning that some real estate markets are in a bubble. They're even calling for strong government intervention. Mm. BMO's Robert Katchik says the market is, quote, boiling, end quote, and wants to find a way to curb flipping and blind bidding, where prospective home buyers offer ridiculous amounts to outbid their competitors without knowing the other offers, often to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's a lot of Viola Desmonds. <laughs> Likewise, RBC's Robert Hogue says what's mushing up the ting is, quote, buyers and sellers expecting prices to keep rising, end quote. Hogue, being the bold fellow he is, says government should consider taxing capital gains on the sale of principal residences to slow things down. For context, though, policymakers of the Bank of Canada and finance are welcoming the hot markets, saying they're manageable. And more importantly, we need that activity to persist if we want our economy to pull through COVID. So any thoughts on all this activity? I I have more of a question. I'm hoping maybe one of you can can help answer this question. How can the gut like in what way would the government step in to to manage this? Isn't that what the CMHC does? So I understand that when again ec- economics like when when you sell a new home that grows the economy. When you resell a house, it does it doesn't do anything. It doesn't add to our economic growth um so yeah i would i would assume that cmhc has a role to play but even in the 42nd parliament when we introduced measures to tighten up mortgage rules so that first-time buyers weren't defaulting Mm -hmm. that on on their houses or we made sure that people had that 20 percent or increased it to 20 percent so people could buy Mm -hmm. um that's cooled the housing market a little bit. Mm. I I'm not sure. Like if these if these places are in a bubble, what the government, what prospective individuals want the government to do is when a market is so hot that people are buying at ridiculous amounts and then it cools. What happens to your property values? Right. Mm. This is what we don't want to happen. It is something like in the United States when that when the housing bubble just when the housing market just crashed. I'm not saying that that would happen here, but I think that's why they want government to step in and what measures they take. I don't know what those will be. This is not my area of expertise, mm-hmm. but we just don't want people buying a house for. And I, I have to say the house that I bought here in Whitby two years ago. Uh, two years before I bought it, the person bought it at the height of the, the market. Mm-hmm. 
And by the time it cooled and we bought it, we paid $200,000 less oh, wow. than what they bought it for. So that's, that's the kind of thing that when people are out of pocket, that could really be detrimental to the economy. So for me, it's good. But for the person that sold, they're in a lot of trouble, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's something that we don't want to happen. Patience, any thoughts? No, I mean, it's it's tough. You know, we're, we're at a time where um, boomers are exiting the workforce and millennials are trying to buy houses. And this is the mess that we're walking into. So from a millennial perspective, it's it, this is this is a disaster. Uh, and I think um, we, we've spoken on this podcast before about international investment. And I wonder if that's what's kind of keeping this going because who has these additional hundred thousand dollars that they're qualifying for for mortgages for in the middle of a pandemic but but then again i've been hearing some people call this pandemic a bandemic meaning it's a a really great time to to build your bands to to make money so maybe i'm just not really understanding but it, it just seems like like such a huge disconnect that at the same time as we have um the separation between uh, the upper class and the 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 working class or the the lower class, but we also are seeing crazy like jumps in 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 the the property values um, in the real estate market. So it's it's nuts. I just wish I had a second property. <laughs> Jumping to our next story, you may not have heard, but Rogers is looking to buy Shaw for twenty point four billion. Rogers is, well, you know who Rogers is, one of the big three, along with Bell and TELUS, that owns almost a third of the market today. Shaw, on the other hand, is a cable and internet company in Western Canada that since 2016 also built a cell phone business under the Freedom Mobile banner in BC, Alberta, and Ontario. But those markets aren't really growing, and service can be spotty, as some of our listeners may know. Although Shaw is much smaller than the big three, which have between 10 to 11 million customers each, working out to 88% of the market share, it's still the country's solid number four, with nearly 2 million customers. But even with its small size, it can definitely lower cell phone bills in competitive markets. For example, research from the Competition Bureau showed that carriers like Freedom knock prices down in regional markets between 35 and 40% with just 5% market share. Same thing with Sastel in Saskatchewan and Videotron in Quebec. So isn't this merger taking things in the wrong direction? Depends who you ask. Robert McFarlane, a former tele-CFO from 2012, said investing in infrastructure is crucial. But if you tell the big three they can't have high prices by gobbling up uh, competition, then kiss rural high-speed internet goodbye because they'll have to recoup the lost revenue from somewhere. And obviously, rural markets have far less customers. Analysts like Aravinda Galapetege of Canaccord Genuity sees Rogers having to give something up if they want approval. He cites when Bell bought Manitoba Telecom Services in 2016 and was forced to divest a portion of their wireless business to TELUS and rural internet provider Explornet Communications. John Lawford, executive director of the Public Interest Advocacy Center, said even if Rogers' wireless assets were sold, He can't see any other viable competitors taking Freedom's place, which, quote, removes all hope of getting a fourth carrier for some time, end quote. 
The decision is in the hands of cabinet, the CRTC, and the Competition Bureau, and will likely take nine to 12 months to be delivered. The quagmire for Trudeau's liberals is that since 2019, they've campaigned on a promise to reduce wireless bills by 25% over two years, and regional players like Freedom, owned by Shaw, are crucial to achieving that. But at the same time, Trudeau's mandate letter to the Minister of Industry this year focused on the need for investing in networks and doesn't even mention affordability. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hmm. So here's the question. Rogers wants to gobble up Shaw, a non-competitive but crucial player for affordability, promising they'll create 3,000 new jobs in Alberta, BC, and Ontario by investing $2.5 billion in 5G networks and create a billion-dollar fund to connect rural and Indigenous communities to high-speed internet in the West if they get their way. Would you approve it? Kind of. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I would. It really makes me scared to have the big three move from 88% mar- um, controlling 88% of the market share to like over 90%. That's a very scary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? There's something about the, the creation of, of new jobs and perhaps the, the, the training and development of people in, in that part of the country that um, seems really, really important. Um, and we know that various, you know, indigenous communities, particularly in the prairies, don't have access to high-speed internet. Um, mm-hmm. And if there's more that we can do to kind of close that. I mean, do they do they even have running water or or, or clean water now? Did did we fix that anyway? The majority of <laughs> <laughs> it's still not done. No, it is still not done. Like so much work to be done. So I mean, anything that that will help to connect these communities uh, and and increase their access is a good thing, even though I'm, I'm extremely uncomfortable with um, Rogers getting more market share. I, I, would, I would have to say no, though, patience, mm-hmm. uh, to be quite honest yeah. with you, because I don't think 3,000 jobs is enough to warrant a monopoly, mm-hmm. because that monopoly will end up, even if they have a billion-dollar fund, um, somebody's going to pay for that billion-dollar fund. So... It are services. So now you have access to high speed internet, but you can't afford it. Mm. <laughs> so what's the point? Yeah, yeah. Right. If we're not going to increase competition within our telecom space mm-hmm. and we continue to have these big three gobble up small players. And there's a lot of like smaller companies that do the infrastructure work and can help, you know, provide those telecom services in the last mile, which is the the places that are hardest to access. Mm -hmm. But these big companies make it so difficult for them to do that. And so now we're making it even more difficult by giving more asset to Rogers. I'm I'm not sure that's the way that we want to go. We need to open up competition in this country. We pay the highest prices in telecom bills in the world. Mm -hmm. We need to open up competition such that Rogers, Bell, TELUS could be a little bit more innovative in the services that they provide and reduce the cost to the Canadian payer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hear that. I, you know, I still agree with patience on this. And the reason is because, and, and I agree, even if it meant, it means now that the big three are going to have 95% market share, because I then turn around and force them to open up their infrastructure to competitors which by the way, a decision is going to be made soon on that. And that's already what has happened with internet providers where they've been required to open up their spectrum and it has reduced costs that way. 
So we could approach it this way where everybody wins. The problem, though, I do appreciate is that there could be some time between the approval and a, you know, a real viable fourth player coming on the scene. For sure. In any case, we'll keep watching the story as it unfolds. Patience all yours. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Moving on to blackity black black news this week. Anti-Asian racism has been getting called out big time. Spurred really by a series of spa shootings in Atlanta, Georgia, consciousness around anti-Asian racism has taken a front seat in the general fight against white supremacy. And boy, are we happy to see it. Yes. Here's what we know. Four people were killed at Young's Asian Spa in Cherokee County, about 30 miles northwest of Atlanta. One man, who was also shot by the shooter, survived. His name is Elsius Hernandez-Ortiz. Four people were then also killed at two other spas in Atlanta, Gold Massage Spa and Aromatherapy Spa. Robert Aaron Long, the 21-year-old suspect, has denied that his attack was racially motivated and claimed to have a, quote... Sex addiction, unquote, with authorities saying apparently he saw massage parlors as sources of temptation. Police had the suspect in custody on charges in relation to the three attacks. Robert Aaron Long was arrested 150 miles south of the city, and police said he was headed to Florida, perhaps to carry out additional shootings. Nuts. Four of the victims were of Korean ethnicity. Uh, and the South and South Korea's foreign ministry said on Wednesday that the attacks heightened existing fears among Asians in the U.S. in the wake of the increasing incidents of hate resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. But it's not just in the U.S., is it, Curtis and Selena? Fortunately not. Right. Amy Goh says that she was saddened by the shootings in Atlanta that left the six Asian American women dead. But as an Asian Canadian woman, she wasn't surprised. Goh is the president of the Chinese Canadian National Council for Social Justice. And she said many Asian Canadian women have experienced hatred or violence in their daily life. The killings in Atlanta follow a wave of recent attacks against Asian Americans and Asian Canadians since the coronavirus first arrived in North 
America. The Vancouver police reported a 717% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes between 2019 and 2020, with the incidents peaking in May. Incidents in Vancouver have ranged from assaults to racist graffiti targeting businesses. The Ottawa police also reported an increase, much lower at 56.9% in the number of hate crime reports between 2019 and 2020, and noted that Asian Canadians have seen the largest increase in hate incidents directed toward them. Any thoughts on on the anti-Asian racism that we're seeing or that we're seeing get some more attention right now? Oh, yeah. So for sure. I mean, I, I think that this is inevitable when you have someone in the highest office in one of the most powerful countries in the world just blatantly being racist specifically to a certain group mm. calling the virus uh you know the, the chinese virus the china virus or whatever you said um this is going to roll out the same thing happened after 9 11 mm-hmm. uh you know it's 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 inevitable um i'm, I'm gonna let curtis weigh in before i i, I want to say something else but i'm, I'm i don't want to be uh controversial <laughs> no it's you know we uh we actually accept different views on the show yeah it's you know i know you know but as as i sort of reflect on this and i know there's been a lot of a conversation about the black community and their support of um of asian uh, people from from east asia at this mm-hmm. point and i, I want to draw people's attention not not that and of course you know I've, I've spoken about, you know, anti-Asian uh, racism quite a bit mm-hmm. um, over the last little while. But I do remember, you know, the, the stories of Black individuals in China being having their passports removed, being evicted, uh, being treated horribly right. after COVID came on board. In, in, in Korea right now, they still do Blackface right. on, on their uh, televisions, you know. We, we need to be calling things out holistically and globally when things happen. And, you know, I could, I could see sort of the, the challenge um, with Black individuals who are, are upset that there's, there is just such anti-Blackness in, in East Asian communities. Right. Um, and that's not to say that we don't stand up and support and say that racism at, at all levels is inappropriate and unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, we are always at the forefront of these activism movements mm-hmm. for everybody, including ourselves. But who goes at the forefront for us? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes is a is is the challenge that and I I want to be respectful of our our brothers and sisters who are who are tired too, right. are tired in every way, shape and form. Right. And we can't continue to be at the forefront of activist movements when we don't, re- first of all, receive the benefits of those movements. We're always the last to receive them, even with DEI and all of these you know, equity sort of streams. But we can't always be at the forefront and not say, okay, you know, somebody, what is somebody going to say? Okay, we'll tag in. We'll be at the forefront for, for, for Black individuals. And I just, I don't know. I, I just I want to put it out there that there's a lot more work to be done here. 
I, I, so, you know, you speaking first, you, you actually kind of took the wind out of my sails. I love it. I, I was going in that similar direction. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to also, uh, you know, talk specifically about, I don't know if you both saw, there was a, I, I assume China, either Chinese or Korean, actually it might be Korean um, grandmother who literally was just standing on the corner in I believe San Francisco. And uh, this white guy, this young white guy came in and, and clocked her in the face. Oh, my God. Yeah. She turned around, though, and put him on a stretcher with a two by four. So I guess that balances out there. But no, seriously, like, you know, she was she was she was dist- <laughs> yeah, she was distraught, though, you know, like because you see the video in the aftermath, you see him on the stretcher, you see, you know, EMS around her and she's she's she's. She's, she's speaking again, either Korean or Mandarin or Cantonese. Um, and you know, I can, you can feel her pain. She's, she's angry, but as soon as she says what she says, she's, she blurts out crying because she's distraught. And I know what that, like you're distraught. I know what that feels like. And so I I just want to say, you know, we feel that pain, but just like Selena's pointing out, you know, let this be a turning of the page where more of our Asian brothers and sisters um, are more willing to speak out about these issues in in tandem with mm-hmm. black communities who are working to dismantle white supremacy, as well with indigenous communities who are seeking reconciliation. For sure. Globally. And this has to be a global movement. It can't just be that we have our blinders on and ex- assume that things just happen within a North American context. Because like I said, you know, there, there are things happening around the world that people need to pay attention to. Anti-Blackness is just is not just North American or anti-Asian racism. It's just not North American. It ha- we have to look at our, our, our across our borders. You know, I, I totally hear you and I, I, I feel like Patience agrees with you, but I, I actually disagree. Um, not that we shouldn't be aware of what goes on in the world because I, I remain aware Uh I mean, we're talking about our Asian brothers and sisters. For example, there's the Uyghur detentions in China. But when we when we consider how much there is to do on, even if we look on a continental basis, we I think we have to consider the fact that we have a way of life and a way of doing things here that is very different from other from other regions in the world. And we we quite literally now look. This is me speaking from my ignorant perspective. But we don't have the capacity to truly understand what is happening and how things are developing on the ground where they are. I think that we have to focus on our needs for progress first, and then we can, you know, essentially engage the world in the same way. Can I can I interject here? Because you know what I found really interesting about this story and the way that that the the news documented the story or the media has been documented this, documenting the story is, um, you know, amidst you know these these Asian uh, American victims and their families speaking out and whatever different organizations, the like South Korea spoke out. When does that happen? When do black people get killed? And even if it's a group of Jamaicans or it's a group of Nigerians or whatever, when do you ever hear the consulate or the embassy of this country speak out in defense of those people? So I think just, just obviously, I, I agree with what Selena was saying. I think that there's there's a global element to it because I think that's how... I don't. I don't know. I think. I think that's how. Like you start to see these geopolitical manifestations of power start to to show up. You know, I was so surprised. It's like South Korea's 
consulate or, or embassy is speaking out on behalf of these six victims? Exactly. Fam, nobody would ever do that for me. <laughs> like Nigeria's embassy is not calling or is not is not like global news or CNN is not calling the Nigerian embassy to be like, oh, you know what what happened here? No, we're not nobody's asking for comment. Like <laughs> what? It's a, it's an important consideration though, patience, when you think about the the geopolitical impact of some of these issues around the world. So do countries not step in because of the power mm. of these of the United States, the power of, of Canada? Do they not say anything because of trade, because there will be implications to a number of different issues? You know, the fact that that South Korea actually said something is, is an interesting it's something that people need to be paying attention to, you know, quite, quite frankly. Yeah, that, uh, that's totally fair. You know, on the note of, you know, should we be do, should we be confronting China? I, you know, the answer is yes, but I think that we have to be careful about how we do it. China is the second most powerful country in the world. They are a former empire. They like, we we have to consider these geopolitical considerations. So if we are going to go up against China or even if in the perspective of the United States, if we're going to go up against China, it has to be in concert with other nations, which has started. Um, some of you who may be following uh, international relations, that, that has started this week. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's a different subject. Um, so next we have a story that almost slipped past my radar, but it's about my former hood, Jungle City, also known as Lawrence Heights. So after almost a decade of proceedings that began with a random stop and arrest of four black teenagers, and really this this incident damaged community trust in Toronto police, on Monday, March 15th this year, these young men edged one step closer to justice. Here are the details of this case. Officers Lorenko and Pius were assigned to the now disbanded Toronto Anti-Violence Intervention Strategy, TAVIS, unit on November 21st, 2011. When they entered up the parking lot of a Toronto community housing complex on Neptune Drive in an unmarked van. The Tavis unit is widely known in the Black community for its aggressiveness and high level of documenting people, Black people, obviously, disproportionately so, in carding and street check encounters, which we, we know is illegal against human rights codes um, nationwide. According to the officers, they were there to enforce a trespassing law. They intercepted the boys on foot as the four boys were headed to an evening Pathways to Education mentoring session. Just as an aside, Pathways to Education is a program that I'm actually involved with. It's a program that supports kids to get on a path to post-secondary education. Great program. After one of the boys tried to exercise his right to not answer questions or identify himself, Officer Lorenko separated that boy from the rest of the group punched him twice, and then pulled and aimed his firearm at the others when the two when two of the three remaining boys made moves to help the boy who was separated. The boys, twin brothers, then 15, and two friends, aged 15 and 16, were charged with assaulting police, and then the teen who did not want to answer police questions was additionally charged with threatening death and assault with intent to resist arrests. 
None were convicted in connection with the incident because the incident was captured on security cameras. The boys later launched a public complaint, and this public complaint is what is now um, being resolved in, in court 10 years later. The issue, or the issue that I have is with the decision and the charges sent from the tribunal. So Lorenko, the senior officer that night, and the person who pointed his gun at the boys, and the one who punched the boy in the face, and Pius was four years on the job and new to Tavis. They were each found guilty of discreditable conduct under the OPP Services Act for arresting without, quote, good and sufficient cause. They arrested two of the boys that night. Lorenko, who faced additional charges, was also found guilty of using excessive force when he punched one of the boys. But the, the, the tribunal found that Lorenko was not guilty of use of excessive force for pulling out his firearm and pointing it at the others. Oh, you can terrorize people. That's fine. So although race and anti-Black racism was acknowledged in the hearing, there was no mention of race and anti-Black racism in the charging documents. So it was said in the hearing, acknowledged in the hearing, but not in the actual charges. The tribunal found that race was not a factor and that the stop of the boys was random. The boys' lawyer has asked for the officers, particularly Lorenko, to lose their jobs. Yeah. Citing case precedents, Lorenko's lawyer, so the cop's lawyer, has called for the proposed loss of 12 days pay. 12 days pay for Lorenko. A heavy penalty. This guy called it a heavy penalty, fam. And the call for, and he said, said that the call for dismissal, so the call for him to lose his job, was outside the bounds of reasonableness. There's a bit more. Lawyers for both officers pointed to their clients' exemplary careers since the incident as mitigating factors. Listen to the listen to how exemplary the careers are. Um, <laughs> uh, they said that so Lorenko um, apparently has been seeking treatment after his second impaired driving incident. Oh yeah, yeah, which involved yeah. being drunk off duty while in a police vehicle with two police firearms. But it said, "Fam, the guy is continuing with counseling." Listen, there's a little bit more. Just let, let me go on a little bit more because I'm I'm on like I'm on one right now. Proceed. They also the, the Lorenko's lawyer also pointed to media coverage and the impact that the media has had on them and their families, saying that the coverage oh. and the complainants painted Lorenko as a racist, a stain that he can never remove despite the tribunal's findings. <laughs> So are you guys wondering what happened to the boys who were stopped that day? Yes. Tell us more. Over the years, one of the complainants dropped out of the case. We can imagine why he did that. And another, Johannes Brahanu, was shot to death in 2018 in what remains an unsolved Toronto homicide. Fam, what? Yo, Listen, what this reminds me of, it, sound, it sounds like he is literally one of the officers who um, I actually spoke about on a prior episode last year, where in the last 10 years, there's like 279 officers who effectively should be fired because they've literally done things like you mentioned, you know, driving impaired or beating their wife or having uh, illegal guns or th- massively, like just deeply uh, uh, criminal behavior 
and they're still on the force. Like they ain't going nowhere. This this reminds me of the um, the exonerated five. Mm. You know mm. where the the challenge of like what what does that do? That situation do like this breaks my heart. Like what does that do to a boy? Yeah, I just what does that do to a boy to have? The, the people that on their cars says to serve and protect, pull them away, punch them, stop them, humiliate mm-hmm. them. You know, what does it do to their, digni- their dignity, their humanity? They're, they're, they, you know, they're on their way to a pathways program. They're trying to do something better for themselves. Mm-hmm. How does this interrupt their sense of being? You know, what should have happened was not file a complaint. They should have just sued their ass. Yeah. Like the, the like, the, and, and this is where I think like our community, especially now with lawyers need to just step in and say, no, let's just, just file a complaint. Let's just sue. And this is one of the reasons why this black class action lawsuit against the federal government. Mm-hmm. Is so like it hypes me up so mm-hmm. much because we're, I'm tired of talking about racism and, oh, you know, there was no mention of anti-Blackness in the proceeding. Okay, that's fine. But we're going to take it out of your pocket. Straight. We're going to take it out of your wallet. You could you could not say anti-Black if you want, <laughs> but I want to say green all day. I just want to, I just want to like, just, just sue. And it, it's such a frustrating exercise when we think about how racism causes trauma in people's lives. Yeah. And then it's just dismissed. Not only is the, the whole Tavis program was a violation of our human rights, it was de- dehumanizing. These are children. These are these are children that are going to be impacted for the rest of their lives. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, this one was shot dead. This one was, you know, this. And how, how did that moment in their lives change the trajectory of their lives forever? That's that's the saddest part of this entire because I'm I could see them four boys you know laughing and acting the fool as they're walking to their their you know yeah. their pathways program joking cutting jokes all of a sudden this man is has I can't talk about this one sorry it just it brings me to a very very sad place and the fact that they <laughs> that they drag these um, hearings out ten years. Yeah years like why why would you why would you want to stay on the hearing yeah. right like you're not going to get justice you know right. it's, just a, it's a criminal punishment system there's no justice for us so why am i going to stay why am i going to stay and, and what to hear at the end that i've got no justice because i'm not worth it yeah I, well somebody told me that the day i saw my friend get punched in the face that there's no justice yeah. you know so this is it's anyhow one thing that we talk about a lot in in political science is that you know racism is not always going to look the same way right like racism is going to adapt to the way that that the rest of the world is moving and i think a really good example of this is is that they called um this man losing his job outside of the bounds of reasonableness and i really want all of our listeners i want you to let that sink in that somebody can punch you in your face. Sorry, not somebody. A a public servant can punch you in your face 
during a random stop and point his gun at your friends when they stand in just to to make sure that you're okay. All of this can happen. You're 15 years old. You're a child. Children. Children, yes. All of this can happen. And him losing his job. And this is not the first strike or second. He's been caught twice before driving Mm -hmm. under the influence in a police vehicle Mm -hmm. with... So he's protected by that police vehicle. He knows. Right. Right. So all of this can happen and still him losing his job. A, A call for dismissal is, quote outside the bounds of reasonableness, end quote. Mm -hmm. So if you are going to tell me that the system is not racist, there's nothing, I have nothing more to say. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's, it, it begs the question when you have leaders who say, well, there's no systemic racism or, you know, um, people within the the criminal punishment system saying, "Well, I can't define how you know systemic racism plays out here." Hmm. It's like what? It's it's because you actually don't want to. Right. When you have RCMP officials saying, "Well, we don't know how to how to define this in front of me," like if everybody should be losing their job. If you if you get up in front of anybody as a leader within any part of this country and say that systemic racism doesn't exist or I don't know how to define it. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, clearly you're not capable of doing this job. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) It it should just be that easy. And those conversations are happening right now because for, Oh yeah. I'm I'm referencing things that like have been in the news recently. Right. Exactly. Colton Bushy, for example, right. Like real conversations about whether or not the RCMP should be, should be disbanded. Right. And that that's that while while these conversations so so to speak are happening, who where the consequences come to our community, to our children. This these are where the consequences lie. Mm-hmm. And at some point we as a as black communities across this country need to make a decision on, you know, how much of this are we are we gonna just take and allow to happen? And and that's that's the frustrating piece is that we, you know, see again, seeing this black class action lawsuit is like enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Enough is enough. And that that we need to do at all times at this point. We just want to we want to really thank you formally, Selena, for staying with us on, on the episode and commenting on Canadian news and, and black issues. I'm sorry that we're leaving on such a such a low note. Um no, this this fires you up. Like you should be out to do work, yeah. right? This is where you say, you know, work needs to be done. So let's let's get it at this point. Right? Let's get it. Let's get it. Thank you so it, much. It's nuts, but yes, thank you, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, we we look forward to having you back on the show because, as uh, our our former guests know as well. We're looking for this to be a form of dialogue between mm-hmm. prominent members of the community and those who listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm. And there's hundreds of us at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. and we hope to see you again soon or hear you again. Soon. For sure. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Jumping to questions for the audience. 
First of all, I told you there'd be drama at the conservative convention, and I was right. O'Toole delivered what some would consider a rousing speech on the need to have the courage to grow and to take climate change seriously. He was quite explicit, saying, quote, We've now fought and lost two elections against the carbon tax because voters did not think we were serious about addressing climate change. And I will not allow 338 candidates to defend against the lie from the liberals that we are a party of climate change deniers. We will have a plan to address climate change, end quote. To that end, a group of delegates from Quebec moved a motion and it went like this, quote, Climate change is real, and the Conservatives are willing to act. Highly polluting Canadian businesses must take responsibility for reducing their greenhouse gas emissions and be held accountable for the results, and that the party believes in supporting innovation in green technologies, end quote. The motion was promptly defeated 54 to 46, forcing Aaron into damage control and to take several temporary seats. (laughs) Still... O'Toole says he's the leader, and what he says goes. They will have a credible plan. He says he won't do a carbon tax. So what do you think his credible plan will include? You've just listened to episode 50 of The Drip. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. You can also keep up with us through our Instagram or through our Patreon page dedicated to the podcast. Follow us or support us at The Drip TO. And we love our many non-BIPOC listeners, but a message specifically to our Black listeners. We hope that you know this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to thank Selena once again for bringing her energy to the pod. Who do you think we should have next? See y'all next time. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.